Thank you. And you're listening to WBAI New York 99.5FM and streaming live 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 366 days this leap year on WBAI.org. I am your host, David Brand, coming to you live on the road. Usually I'm broadcasting from my apartment in Queens, but today I'm at the Jersey Shore. And I feel like Mike Francesa from WAN when he goes on vacation at Bar A in Belmar. Oh, yeah, coming up next, we have a live set from Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. Let's go, just kidding. We do have two fans, no Southside Johnny, and I'll get to them in a second. Great working with you again today, Sean. Um, You're breaking up. Thanks for me. If it's Sunday, it's City Watch. Our first guest coming up in a few moments is Councilmember Antonio Reynoso, who I invited on to discuss the city's new budget, an $88.1 billion spending plan he actually opposed, and he even voted no on on June 30th. He'll talk about that along with his bid for Brooklyn Borough President. Our second guest later in the show is the hardworking journalist Emma Whitford, who, among many things, covers the changing by-the-day developments in New York State housing courts and a temporary eviction moratorium for the website Law 360. Seriously, there have been so many state directives and executive orders related to housing court and the freeze on evictions that it's hard to keep everything straight. But Emma has been doing that and will explain where things stand later on in the show. But the consequences are scary. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people are at risk for becoming homeless as a result of the COVID-19 economic shutdown. People who were getting along pretty well lost their job and suddenly they can't make their rent. And now they are facing the very real threat of eviction at a time when New York City and New York State are already experiencing an historic homelessness crisis. I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are experiencing that very situation themselves or know someone who is we may have time at the end of the show to take listeners' calls. We would love to hear from people facing this terrible predicament. Emma will provide some resources for people at risk of becoming homeless, and she will explain the latest in the saga of the temporary eviction freeze set to expire soon. We will also have the latest installment on our news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston's excellent series, New York in Crisis, Coronavirus Diary. Over the past few months, Celeste has been talking to a diverse cross-section of New Yorkers, about their experiences during the COVID-19 crisis. She's talked with Daniel Drum, a council member who lost several friends to COVID, and Nidia Velasquez, a member of Congress who discussed the federal public health and financial response to the coronavirus. At the same time, Celeste has talked with Alicia Joseph, a high school senior whose last semester and future plans were completely disrupted by the coronavirus, and David German, a Long Island resident who shared what it's like caring for his wife, Linda, who has Alzheimer's during the coronavirus pandemic. Stay tuned for the next installment in Celeste's series coming up later. To start off, I want to give some background about our first guest, Councilmember Antonio Reynoso, who grew up in Williamsburg and now represents a chunk of North Brooklyn and a sliver of Queens. He's the only council member who represents both boroughs, and he'll have to weigh in on the age-old debate which borough is best. His specific neighborhoods are Bushwick, Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and Brooklyn, and Ridgewood, Queens. Reynoso was elected to the council in 2013 and is term limited in 2021, but he's been planning his next move for a while. He's running for Brooklyn Borough President. Here to talk about the budget and his bid for Brooklyn Borough President is Antonio Reynoso, a council member representing New York City's 34th Council District. Council Member Reynoso, welcome to City Watch. Thank you for having me, David. Appreciate being on. Thank you for having me, 
So the New York City budget, always subject to scrutiny and media coverage, received an extreme amount of attention and analysis this year. Even before COVID hit, the city was projecting huge revenue losses and was planning budget cuts. The coronavirus economic shutdown only worsened the budget hole. Then a few weeks ago, a new issue, championed by advocates led by black and Latino New Yorkers for many years, emerged at the forefront of budget talks. The police killing of George Floyd touched off protests across New York City and galvanized many, many New Yorkers around the effort to decrease funding for the NYPD, often using the slogan, defund the NYPD. The mayor and council leaders agreed to cut some money. The mayor says $1 billion. That number is at the very least debatable. Councilmember Reynoso, you were one of nine council members who voted no on the budget because it didn't go far enough in terms of cutting funding and changing the direction of policing. In a statement, you said $1 billion was an arbitrary number, and you said you voted no because, quote, what we are really pleading for is an end to a system of policing that discriminates on the basis of economic status, race, religion, gender, and sexual orientation. So how does a budget foster that kind of transformative change? Well, we can start by having a conversation that focuses on bringing resources to the issues that are most affecting uh, poor communities that tend to be mostly black and brown. What we do is invest in education, invest in our seniors, invest in our uh, environment, uh, our education. It's just something that didn't happen in this budget. What we did do, though, is out of all the agencies that are now under a hiring freeze, only one agency has been exempt of that, and that agency is the NYPD, the New York City Police Department. Uh, And the message that that's sending, considering the wave of protests and the movements that we've seen all throughout the country, is a sad one and is one that makes me believe uh, or know that the city of New York uh, completely missed the mark uh, and is going to be held accountable in a moment in time when we remember these days uh, where we did very little to reform, modify, defund the NYPD. In 2015, you and your colleagues voted to increase the police department by 1,297 officers, and that's something even Mayor de Blasio resisted for much of that year. And that was 2015. That was after uh, many police-involved deaths and a couple high-profile ones. Eric Garner killed by a cop using a banned chokehold. Akai Gurley randomly shot by a cop in the stairwell of his girlfriend's housing complex. What changed between 2015 and 2020 besides a bunch of term-limited council members running for new offices? There were a group of council members that thought that the way we would change the NYPD was to give them cops that can that, that were or that reminded them of beat cops of the I guess the 70s and 80s. They wanted folks uh, neighborhood they wanted neighborhood uh, officers that would be the same officers you know for decades and eventually would build relationships with local communities and be able to do better policing because of it, because of the relationships they would build. Uh, I, I, alongside Jamani Williams at that time, who was a council member, we objected to it, but we are only a few council members compared to the entire body. But what we did see was a historic increase in SYEP, which is the Summer Youth Employment Program, uh, where we got closer to ensuring that every child that wants a job during the summer gets a job. Uh, And that was very important for us as council members to make sure we supported. We also had uh, the increase in crime prevention work that we're doing, or the crisis, the crime prevention crisis unit, which is the one that gives funding to local community organizations to do a lot of the de-escalation and work that needed to happen that wasn't that shouldn't have gone to the police department and the difference between what happened in 2015 and now is that we had a lot of funding coming in in the city of new york so we weren't necessarily taking away from one area to give to another uh, or prioritizing in that way uh, but instead we were adding funding to resources that we thought were important to move the conversation in a better you know in a better way and for it uh, unfortunately we had to vote for a budget that also included an increase in cops. But I, I want to make sure that the perspective there is, is realized where we received historic funding for both the, crime prevent, the, the crisis management system and for SYEP. So we thought it would be something we do. It is voting for it. Looking back, uh, the conversation should have been different, uh, but because we were in a time where we were seeing 
so much money coming into the city of New York, uh, we thought that there was a balance there. Uh, and, uh, again, like looking back, I think it's something that we, I would have done differently. I think Jermani uh, Williams would have done differently, but it's where we, where we came, where we got to. Do you regret voting in favor of that budget to increase the police department then? I feel that as a council member, I've informed myself, and I'm growing every day and getting much better um, or trying to get better. I think accountability has made me a better council member. Uh, and knowing what I know now, if I was to go back to my uh, second budget in the city council, I would have not voted to increase uh, the NYPD. Uh, but again, as I, I'm learning every day, and it is something that I wouldn't have done. So I don't want to say I regret it, uh, but I do, I do think if I had the opportunity to go back, I would definitely change my vote. What do you think of some of the advocacy in opposition to the budget in recent weeks? You, you have activists going to some of your colleagues' front doors and knocking on the door and urging them to uh, decrease funding to the police. You have people camped out outside City Hall for a couple weeks now. Um, and, and both of those movements are getting a lot of criticism. I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. I think both of those movements, uh, one of them is not unusual. Occupying City Hall uh, comes from the, the foundation that was set forth by Occupy Wall Street. Uh, so it's not something that is foreign to us. Uh, I think it's a, it's a movement. It's a smart thing to do to make sure we bring attention to an issue. Uh, the protests that are happening in front of council members' houses, I also think our slight change to how traditional protests have gone. Uh, usually it's in front of offices or in areas where uh, council members are showing up publicly. The coronavirus is not allowed for the protesters to engage elected officials in a meaningful way, so they've decided that one of the tactics they will use is to go to their homes. How is highly uh, unusual and unprecedented. And I believe that the tactics that need to be used in order for us to get the message have to change as well. If we keep doing the same thing and we get the same results, which are results that no one is happy with, or at least the movement is not happy with, then there, there is a call for a change in tactic as to how we are going to get elected officials to respond. So I don't think it's a negative thing. Uh, I think it's a, it's a smart way to move. Uh, I want to be clear that we have protesters in front of my house that I engaged and had a conversation with um, or attempted to have a conversation with. Um, and I think that it's healthy. I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. I think a lot of elected officials see uh, protesters more as a mob than constituents that are looking for you to vote a certain way. And I think if we change that, that conversation or allow for elected officials to see that those are residents that want, are seeking change and are looking to do something in a positive way, uh, I think that council members would be less concerned about folks coming to their homes. Hmm. So the budget also includes deep cuts to social programs. There's a $457 million cut to the Department of Housing, Preservation, and Development's next capital budget, which analysts say will stall at least 5,000 new units of affordable housing during an already existing homelessness crisis. The arts budget is down by 11%. How could some of these cuts have been avoided? The cuts uh, could have been avoided by taking money out of agencies that are not serving the needs of the neediest in New York or the most vulnerable in New York. We should have not touched any CUNY or education money. We shouldn't have touched any housing money, any money for seniors, any money for parks that are seen to be the only place where folks can go and social distance uh, appropriately. Uh, and that didn't happen. Instead, all of those areas received a cut and also received a hiring freeze. They will not be able to hire anyone for the entire year. The only agency that was exempt of this hiring freeze was the New York Police Department. I think that's very important for people to note that the defund NYPD was looking, the defund NYPD movement was looking to move money away from the police department into these areas that could actually help us come get to a better society and start addressing the ills uh, that have existed for too long here in the city of New York. I think that's important for people to pay attention to uh, about the movement of resources. Uh, we could have probably cut another half a billion dollars from the NYPD if we put in a real effort, and that half a billion could have meant less cuts or no cuts 
to these other programming programs like housing, and that didn't happen. And I really feel like the city council lost its opportunity and lost the moment to really set itself apart uh, in showing that we care deeply about black and brown lives. Were there any wins in this in this budget? I mean, we hear so much about cuts. Were there any programs that were preserved or maintained their level of funding that uh, you were happy about? To be honest, I don't think there were many wins. I think uh, during a crisis, a, a budget crisis like the one we have because of the coronavirus, it would be hard to find victories. Uh, for the most part, what we did was save some things. Um, and again, for example, fair student funding is going to be reduced in the city of New York, which means that the education budget that principals traditionally have is going to look a lot smaller than what it looked like the year before. And those are things that we knew we were going to have to have a conversation about. But to have that conversation uh, and not have the conversation about truly defunding the NYPD, I thought really missed the mark. Uh, as city council members, we really missed the mark on getting to the core of what this movement was asking for. If we were going to have cuts, make them minimal and make sure that they're equitable. And we didn't have that conversation in a meaningful way because of the fact that a lot of council members wanted to protect the NYPD, the fact that the mayor wanted to protect the NYPD, uh, and what we end up is with a budget that I think fails in many, many parts. And we're going to bear the brunt of that for the entire year. We're going to start seeing the effects of all the budget cuts that did happen and see the NYPD stay largely intact. So changing course a bit, you are running for Brooklyn Borough President, and right now you represent a district that includes North Brooklyn and a piece of Ridgewood, Queens. Is it true that your platform includes annexing a piece of Queens and claiming it for Brooklyn? <laughs> I, I haven't heard that one yet, uh, but I represent South Ridgewood. I love South Ridgewood. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great community. I, I, do, I haven't heard that from Ridgewood residents, haven't asked me to consider that, and neither have Brooklyn residents. Uh, but I, I won't say uh, I'll keep it uh, alive in the ether. Uh, if that is something that we want to have a conversation about, I am more than happy to bring in a community as amazing as Ridgewood into Brooklyn. But no, I've yet to hear that outside of this outside of this conversation. It is not one of my one of the the platforms by which I'm running for Brooklyn Borough President on. But it's it, it, it's interesting. I've never thought about it, but it's very interesting. I mean, you can use the power vacuum right now in the Queensborough president's office. There's an acting borough president. Who knows when we'll find out when the next borough president uh, wins the Democratic primary and then the general election because the vote count is going to take so long. But you could claim both seats and consolidate beans. <laughs> I, I think I would love for you to join my campaign and bring about these ideas to, to, to many of my like consultants and the people who are doing the work. But uh, look, it seems like uh, Donovan Richards is doing a pretty good job right now, and it looks like he's going to pull it off. I think he would be very upset with me if I told him I wanted to take some of his constituency away. So, you know, I want to respect Queens. I want to respect Brooklyn uh, and, and, and move on from this topic that I think would be very controversial in the city of New York. That's right. And it's a joke. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But seriously, there are few tangible powers of the borough president. And so how would you use the office to influence the change and move to achieve the type of structural transformation that you're calling for and that you've called for uh, that wasn't included in the city budget? How would you use the office to achieve that? The first thing I'll do is reform and completely modify community boards in Brooklyn. I think community boards have turned into a, a nimbiest uh, local political uh, haven that hasn't allowed us to have meaningful conversations uh, that mostly uh, focus on how to keep things the same and how to fight against change. And I think that that's not necessarily something we should be doing. We should be talking about how the future of Brooklyn, what the future of Brooklyn looks like and how we can engage in that conversation in a meaningful way. And what I would do is make sure that the people that I would be appointing to the Brooklyn Borough President, uh, through, through, through the Brooklyn Borough President, to the community boards, that they be people that understand the value of having meaningful transportation. That does uh, include uh, having conversations throughout all of Brooklyn about alternatives uh, that are not car-related. For example, uh, improving uh, bus uh, bus system, improving our public transportation system, and so on. Uh, I would also 
make sure that we have more experts in community boards. If you're talking about land use and you want to have conversations about uh, zoning and so forth, you should have folks that know what they're talking about, that have a background in that type of, in that type of uh, area. And at this point, um, that doesn't necessarily happen in, in Brooklyn. If you want to talk about housing, if you want to talk about education, maybe you should have some information or background on it. I'm also going to do some training for the community boards to make sure that folks are informed as to like, what their power is and what, how they can uh, use their time wisely to make sure that they're making informed and strong decisions for the borough of Brooklyn. Um, I, will, I will not look at Brooklyn as individual neighborhoods necessarily. I'm trying to see if I can uh, build a, a Brooklyn that is, it truly is one Brooklyn and that we're having a conversation about how we can all support each other. That's one of the focuses that I'm going to really have is using community boards in a different way. Add more activists. Add more young people. A few moments left, and I wanted to ask, how would you use the office to address homelessness? Because we have this historic homelessness crisis, and our next guest, Emma Whitford, is going to talk about how the, uh, the lack of consistent action on uh, preventing evictions could exacerbate this problem. So how would you use the office to address homelessness? The, the few powers that exist in the borough president's office, one of them is land use. Uh, I will make sure that we have uh, minimal requirements when it comes to how much units uh, should exist in any affordable housing project for the homeless, for homeless uh, population. I'll make sure that I ask for a higher number than uh, what's been proposed by uh, even council members or the mayor's office. Um, and also, the most important thing is the bully pulpit, making sure that I can be a voice that clearly speaks to assistance for the homeless population through housing uh, and, and being able to use my voice to, to amplify that. Those are two things that are actual powers or, or the powers that exist or influence that exist in the borough president's office that I'll make sure I use to, to, to bring about change for the homeless population. And last question, which borough is better, Brooklyn or Queens? Both boroughs have amazing things. Uh, New York is the greatest city in the world, is what I would say. I'm a Mets fan, love Queens. I'm a Brooklyn Nets fan, love Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn raised me. Brooklyn gave me everything. Uh, I'm standing here because uh, of what Brooklyn did. So if there is an edge, it would be, uh, of course, the edge would go to Brooklyn. All right. Good diplomatic answer. Councilmember Antonio Reynoso, thank you for joining City Watch. Thank you for the work that you do. Appreciate it. Take care. You are listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live all day, every day at WBAI.org. That was Council Member Antonio Reynoso, who represents much of North Brooklyn and a sliver of Queens. He is running for Brooklyn Borough President. Reynoso is just one of the many really relevant and excellent guests you'll hear on City Watch each week and on all of WBAI, really. It's a 60 year old news station that continues to bring you peace and justice radio hour after hour every single day. But we can't do it without you, and that is no joke. We are in the midst of our spring membership drive right now, and we hope you will consider making a cash contribution to WBAI to help keep us on the air. It's a tough time for most of us right now, news organizations included, but WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to continue bringing the great coverage and interviews you hear every day, every week. In recent weeks, City Watch has featured some really marquee guests talking about the biggest issues affecting our communities. We've had Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Grace Meng, activist and former Queens DA candidate Tiffany Caban, State Senator Julia Salazar, former Council Speaker Christine Quinn, Councilmember Carlina Rivera, a frontrunner to become the next Council Speaker. We just talked with Antonio Reynoso running for Brooklyn Borough President. We've had all five candidates for Queens Borough President on our show. We've had great journalists like Daily News sports columnist Bradford William Davis and city and state politics reporter Jeff Colton. And of course, today, we just talked to Councilmember Antonio Reynoso, and coming up in a bit, we have star legal reporter Emma Whitford. And we want to continue bringing you that same level of analysis and reporting, the great guests coming into the studio or talking by phone for interviews. So please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give2wbai.org. That's give the number two wbai.org and clicking buddies on the upper left hand corner when the site opens and following the prompts you can also call our call center at 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a bai buddy again that's 516-620-3602 and you can say it in the name of whatever program you want 
Hopefully you say in the name of City Watch, show us some love. Say you're becoming a contributing member, a BAI buddy, because you like listening to City Watch now Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your smartphone. We appreciate the support. Act now, and I'll throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, The Queen's Daily Eagle. I'm the editor, and we're the only daily print paper in the entire borough of Queens. If you subscribe to WBAI, send me a DM on Twitter, message me. I am at David F. Brand. Again, that's David F. Brand. Let me know you pitched in, and I'll get you the Queen's Daily Eagle soaring to your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. Become a BAI buddy and an Eagle amigo with just one monthly contribution. Visit give2wbai.org. That's give, the number two, wbai.org. Thank you for considering and for contributing. This is City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM. For our next segment, I'll turn it over to news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston with the latest installment in her excellent series, New York in Crisis, Coronavirus Diaries. Here's that piece. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Denise. I live in Brooklyn, and I am a professional nanny and also a part-time home attendant. Oh, my God. It has been a roller coaster. My home attendant job, I still do. I have not stopped working that job. I've worked throughout the pandemic. Even when they had the shelter in place, I worked. Unlike my nanny job, that job, my family, they moved up to Boston, Massachusetts, to the other home, and they've been there since March, and they won't be back in the city until September, hopefully. I have to eat. I have a daughter who is in college, so I have to go to work and to provide basic food and to pay housing, which we know is very expensive in New York City. I've protected myself. I got myself personal protective gear. Um, I, I, I just dealt with it head on. I mean, I followed all the CDC guidelines, what they were saying that we should do. I just followed it. And I'm like, I have to work, put myself in the frame of mind that this will be over at some point. It's going to go back to some sort of normalcy in the near future. So I just put on my brave face and I just do what I had to do. My family were paying me from the time they left, but then now they have to find other um, babysitting needs up where they are in Boston. So that kind of cut back on what they were giving me, even if it was part-time. So now it puts me in a situation where I'm in a tight spot where my budget is like, I'll be like living like dollar to dollar like every week. So it's hard. It's a lot of stress, but I'm somebody, I always look at the positive sides of things. Always look at the positive because I know at some point we're going to rise from this depression that, that, that's going on now. So I'm just dealing with it one day at a time, taking it in strides, meditating, breathing. I've spoken to many nannies and I'm also a member of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. And a lot of workers have been affected by the pandemic. Some majority of workers I know, they're not working because their families have moved either to Long Island some of them have moved out of the city completely, and those workers have left have been left without work. Some the employers are telling them if they don't come to work, they don't get paid, and it's a lot to do with them not being documented. So they use that as their bargaining tool to get them to come to work. It's very hard, and um, NDWA is trying to. We've, we've been speaking with legislators so that we could get the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights passed because a lot of workers have no rights, no benefits because they're undocumented. So hopefully with this pandemic right now, I'm hoping to see a change in legislation concerning all of us domestic workers. A year from now, I really do believe that things are going to be way better with domestic workers because now that we have become essential, it now puts us out there as to we are now able to bargain better 
for 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 better pay because as we know the minimum wage in new york is 15 dollars but then really and truly nobody could survive on a 15 dollar minimum wage so i i do believe at the end of the pandemic i think a lot will change when it comes to 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 the way we have been treated by some of the employers, I think that's going to change. It's going to take a whole 362. Denise Frederick is a nanny and home attendant who lives in Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. Thank you, Celeste. That was our news correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston, with the latest installment in her amazing series, coronavirus diary. It's really a primary source document for how NYC and our neighbors have handled the COVID-19 outbreak, and it's beautiful to listen to each week. And I encourage you to check out this great series of journalism by visiting WBAI.org. And right there on the main page is coronavirus diary. I think you scroll down a bit. Uh, There are 16 installments. The series is formatted really nicely for easy viewing and listening. Each segment is between four and five minutes long. Definitely encourage you to check that out. Again, we are City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org, coast to coast and international. I'm your host, David Brand, coming to you live from the Jersey Shore with my nine-month-old son, Aiden, asleep in the next room. So let's see if he can make it the rest of this hour. We might have a third guest coming on. We're in our new time slot, 10 a.m. on Sundays, and we used to air it in the 6 o'clock hour, but I think this is way better. And we have a great guest coming up. Not only a great reporter, but a great person and a friend, too. This is Law 360 legal reporter Emma Whitford. And before we bring her on, I just want to gas her up a bit. In 2018, I was transitioning from my previous career as a social worker and moving toward my goal of becoming a full-time journalist. And I had been freelancing, and I started reaching out to a handful of journalists I really admired to build a network and to get some guidance. So one of the first people I reached out to is Emma, who reports with empathy and writes with clarity usually on important issues of equity and social justice. And she graciously agreed to meet with me, a stranger for beers in Crown Heights, and she talked about her career path. She taught me some of the ins and outs of the industry. And for that, I really was thankful. And you know, I ended up being in the right place at the right time. And I got a job as an editor of a then brand new newspaper called the Queen's Daily Eagle. And so about a year after that meeting, I got to work with Emma very frequently with the Queen's Eagle. And Emma reported consistently on the movement to decriminalize sex work, on transgender rights, on local politics, and a whole lot more. Now Emma works for Law360, a vast repository of legal news and analysis, much of it geared to a large but niche audience of attorneys, judges, and legal observers. But at Law360, Emma has translated the legalese and elevated stories that matter to all New Yorkers in a way that makes sense and stays relevant for a general audience. Emma has really led the coverage of the confusing as hell saga of the eviction moratorium here in New York State. The governor and state court system froze evictions back in March, an executive order from Andrew Cuomo that established an eviction moratorium, which means marshals couldn't change the locks on doors. People couldn't really be kicked out until June 20th. Well, June 20th has passed, and while Cuomo Cuomo has since extended that order, court proceedings have resumed. We're kind of in this confusing gray area, and that includes eviction cases that began before the moratorium went into effect. So what does this all mean and what's going on? I don't know, but Emma Whitford does. And so happy to welcome Emma Whitford, reporter for Law 360, to City Watch. Welcome to City Watch, Emma. Thanks. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, well, I didn't know you were going to like make me cry this morning, so <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> insane introduction. <laughs> well, it's all true. I mean, I, I really appreciate what you've done to help my career, and I think we all appreciate how you're illuminating this uh, saga of the eviction moratorium right now. So. Let's start. What is the current state of evictions right now in New York City, in New York State? Can someone be evicted from their apartment? Yeah. So the important first answer um, is, as of today, the answer is no. Um, you know, you're right. On June 20th, um, there was this blanket moratorium that had been in effect for several months. That was probably the easiest thing to describe in an elevator pitch, which is just um, New Yorkers could not be evicted. Now, um, as of June 20th, Cuomo has this, um, what I've described as a modified eviction moratorium that took effect. Um, and under that, uh, a tenant is supposed to demonstrate, uh, you know, financial hardship during the period of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so that started a whole new 
debate among uh, the attorneys on both the landlord and tenant side of things about how that's going to be proven. Um, so I think the short answer is now there's like a bit, uh, there's more onus on tenants to have to kind of demonstrate a certain type of hardship um, to avoid being evicted. Uh, and uh, But the other detail, it's, there's always an asterisk these days, um, is that on June 20th, when the blanket moratorium lifted, um, the state court system basically said, hold on a minute, you know, if you're a landlord, you can technically file a case starting today, but we're basically pumping the brakes until July 7th at the earliest. So you're actually having me on at sort of a, a we're, we're headed towards the next pivotal moment because this coming Tuesday um, is the deadline to get a bit more guidance on, uh, on next steps. But the short answer is uh, though new eviction cases can be filed, um, no one can be evicted as of right now. It just seems so confusing and so vague. So people listening might think two days from now, evictions might resume. Is that accurate? And then people have to prove financial hardship. And that's so vague and broad. Like, what does that even mean? Uh, so I guess to start, may, might people be, be evicted on Tuesday or might their eviction proceedings begin on Tuesday? Definitely not. So I think um, a helpful way to I always try to break things down into buckets. So you've got one bucket that is, you know, we've been hearing about, obviously, um, I mean, Denise, who, who had that segment right before me, was such a moving example of all of the um, challenges people have been facing these recent months. So there's no doubt about it. Um, people are having a hard time uh, paying their rent, much more so than typical. Um, so no doubt there's going to be a lot, new, a lot of new eviction cases filed um, in the coming weeks and months. Um, but as we understand it, to the best of our knowledge right now, these new cases, so say you weren't facing any sort of uh, eviction trouble before the pandemic, um, you benefited from this moratorium, those new cases, it seems it's hard to imagine them not moving quite slowly. Uh, you know, housing courts have been backlogged, hectic places um, for years before this, and this is only going to exacerbate that. So our understanding is that these new cases are going to move um, pretty slowly. They've also, the courts have been toying with doing, um, you know, they've been trying these virtual hearings in cases. And one thing we've been hearing from judges is that, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like they've quite, the courts have quite figured out how to manage a virtual hearing um, if you've got a tenant who doesn't have their own lawyer. Um, so it seems like they're going to be front-loading cases where there are attorneys on both sides. The landlord and the tenant both have a lawyer because attorneys are, like, more adept in, in dealing with the technology side of things. Um, so if you're, you know, if you've been stressed out during the pandemic, worried about facing a new case, and, um, you know, you're looking for, uh, for resources to find a lawyer, it seems like you've got a little more time to, like, try to wrap your head around what's going on. Um, the people who might be in a shorter term, more stressful situation are people who were facing uh, eviction or maybe had received a warrant before the moratorium. So we're talking about, you know, a lot of people who were already facing trouble before March 16th. It seems like the courts mo might kind of front load trying to address those cases. Um, so that's one way to think about it. But to, again, you know, to distill it down to a short answer, um, I, it's not going to be like, you know, we, the green light turns green, uh, the light turns green, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, the, the wardens are, are changing all the locks all over the city. It's going to be more stop-and-go um, kind of deal. Uh, so for people listening who might be going through this situation right now, who might be confused about just this flood of different information and nuance and, you know, vagaries when it comes to what's financial hardship. What can they do? Where can they seek guidance or seek support or even seek legal assistance? Totally. So I have some numbers here of different resources. Before I get into that, I just wanted to, like, include some color. You know, here I am, like, my whole job is just to talk to lawyers and have them help me understand what's going on. And I've had a lot of candid conversations in recent weeks. Like, on Friday, I talked to Marika Diaz, who's the managing director of the Safety Net Project at the Urban Justice Center. And she said to me, I like pulled the quote because it seemed illustrative. She said, it's hard for lawyers to keep up with, let alone tenants who are receiving papers out of the blue. So, you know, you've got people who have like a, you know, went to school to, <laughs> to be able to keep up with like the fine print of legalese here and they're confused. Um, I talked to 
another attorney who said he's almost given up on updating his fact sheet for tenants because things are changing so quickly. Um, so all that being said, you know, for tenants who have even the slightest um, concern about what might be coming down the pipe, um, there are three resources I've got here. Um, one really straightforward thing you can do actually is call 311 and ask for the tenant helpline. That's like weekdays nine to five and that's staffed by attorneys and paralegals who can, you know, it's not like they'll necessarily be like, I'll be your lawyer and see and meet you at the courthouse, but they can connect you to free legal services, give you basic advice. Um, so that's just calling 311, the city number asks for the tenant helpline and they will make referrals for legal assistance. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've heard from other tenant attorneys that it's a good resource. Um, and then I'll throw one more at you because I don't want to give you guys too many numbers to write down, but Housing Court Answers um, is another resource, and that's also Monday to Friday from 9 to 5. Similar kind of setup where you've got you know, a legal expert on the other end of the phone who can explain things to you. That number is 212 262-4795. So that's housing court answers at two one two nine six two four seven nine five. Yep, yep, and that's uh, weekdays nine to five. So why is this such an important issue? Oh gosh, so many reasons. Um, well, you know, I mean, uh, again, turning back to like the Denise example, um, she demonstrates really aptly. Um, how so many people have, uh, you know, there's a whole category of people, obviously, who are out of work right now, um, uh, essential workers like Denise, who don't really have a choice whether or not they want to work and have been, you know, dealing with the, the hardships of the pandemic. Um, we've got this pretty important date um, that appears to be coming up at the end of July, where people, you know, and this isn't counting, you know, undocumented folks who can't necessarily Qualified, but people who have been able to get on unemployment, um, the federal government has been giving out an extra $600 a week, um, which has been, you know, huge for people. And that is set to expire at the end of July. So I think a lot of tenant advocates have, like, seen this sort of, for some people, might have kind of an uneasy temporary um, situation that's kind of working out that could be coming to an end pretty soon. Um, you know, taking a step back before this pandemic, I mean, we've got 60,000 homeless people in New York City alone. Um, a couple other statistics here that I thought were interesting. Um, NYU's Furman Center has been analyzing, um, trying to keep track of uh, the number of people who have lost a job during the pandemic. Um, they recently estimated 1.15 million New York State renter households had at least one member who lost their job due to the coronavirus. And then even more interesting than that, I thought, um, even before the pandemic, like more than, so we've got more than 200,000 of those people were already rent burdened, meaning they were spending um, more than half of their income on rent. Um, so basically we had a situation that was already precarious, New York being this, uh, you know, unaffordable city. And then you just like turn that up to a thousand um, with the pandemic. And it's interesting with housing court, um, it's not just the risk of losing your home, which is huge, but, you know, courthouses function in a way that a lot of um, advocates and attorneys are, are concerned about. Um, you know, New York State courts, again, like I was saying, they've been pushing this idea of virtual hearings, but I think there's still a lot of questions about how that's going to work. And we've got this, um, like Brooklyn is a good example, where the physical... Brooklyn Housing Corp building um, is like not a place that I personally <laughs> would want to go during a time when we're still, you know, transitioning uh, through this pandemic. We're talking like. Tell us about because I so I have been to Queens Housing Court many times to cover issues there. And that is apparently the newest housing court and has, you know, the nicest facilities. And yet you see pretty much hundreds of people packed together on benches outside of courtrooms, people packed together in courtrooms waiting for their brief, confusing appearance before a judge. But Brooklyn is known as like the worst in terms of just like the physical layout. So what's it like in there? And what would it be like if a lot of people started coming to court with uh, amid the COVID-19 pandemic? Right. So, um, and again, we're not sure if like, it, it, 
so far, uh, the courts have adjusted so that there's not like a huge glut of people showing up at 9 a.m. on a Monday. Um, but uh, so the Brooklyn Housing Court is on Livingston Street in downtown Brooklyn. And the first thing people will tell you about it is that it's not a courthouse. It's a uh, it's an office building that was kind of converted into a courthouse. Um, I went to an action outside of it a couple weeks ago, and these two attorneys had made this kind of nifty sign where they had like a six foot string and they were standing six feet apart from each other. And then it said, like, not possible inside 141 Livingston. <laughs> so they, you know, someone described it as like being in a crowded subway car that's not going anywhere. Um, there are a lot of courtrooms on upper floors, like as high as nine floors up. And so traditionally, people have crammed into these elevators. And what I'm hearing is like, you know, people aren't going to want to be doing that. Um, the hallways are narrow. There's this second floor sort of intake area where the clerks are that has been, you know, is like under normal circumstances, really crowded. I've got a stack here that some lawyers put in a letter to the courts that they said in 2017, it was estimated that there were north of 2,000 visitors every day to this building. Um, so I actually recently learned that um, Zelnor Myrie was like the headline uh, signatory. He's a state senator. Um, on a letter to the city urging them to just relocate Brooklyn Housing Court to another building. Um, and then there's also the question of, you know, if people eventually do need to go to the courthouse to defend themselves, so how does a, a tenant get there? You take the bus, you take the subway. So there's like all these, you know, sort of vectors um, when you're thinking about this through the lens of the pandemic, um, yeah, that, that go into this whole system. So. Yeah, and I, there was some reporting I remember about a year ago about Bronx Housing Court being so jammed that they would actually have to hold court proceedings in, like, the elevator bay. And so wonder, are we now going to be moving to, like, outdoor uh, court proceedings in, like, tents or something to limit the spread of COVID-19? What are, what are activists calling for in terms of, like, a consistent way to prevent evictions, to keep people housed, to stop the our huge homelessness crisis from getting even worse. What are activists saying? So I feel like they have tried to distill down some really simple demands to kind of counteract this like weird gray area that we're in right now. So they're just like, um, you know, they want an eviction moratorium at least through the end of 2020, I think is their latest demand. And then just a cancellation of rent, you know, for the duration of the pandemic. And, there was a big, you know, there has been this ongoing campaign to cancel rent in New York, and advocates have really continued to beat the drum on that. Um, you know, that when you talk to the landlord bar and landlords, they see that as a non-starter. But it seems that even landlords have come around to acknowledging that, like, you know, what's the saying? You can't, like, get milk out of a stone or something. Like, something's got to give. You know, they want their rent checks. People literally can't write the check. So there has been, like, more talk about, you know, me, maybe needing some larger federal bail, bailout. Um, the, the HEROES Act, which, you know, congressional Democrats uh, introduced a while back that's kind of been viewed as this pie-in-the-sky package, but I think that includes something like $100 billion to, like, uh, cover people's rent. Um, but, uh, yeah, so basically tenants are saying no one should have to go to court no one should have to pay rent. Um, it's just not safe. There's no way to, like, slow roll it um, to please everybody. So, like, let's just pump the brakes. Uh, yeah, we're, we're landlords. We're like, like, you got to bail us out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, they want to get paid, too, I guess. And uh, maybe it doesn't matter where that money comes from in a, a federal bailout or even more state intervention would enable people to stay in their homes and landlords to make some money in the process. But what are the next steps? How do you see this playing out over the next several months and maybe even years as we continue dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic fallout? What's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, immediate next steps, you know, I've been in touch with um, City Hall. We have this, uh, and this is again, New York City specific, but we have this pretty robust right to counsel program that's been gradually expanding throughout the city in recent years. Um, and I know that in the short term, they have their eye pretty um, homed in on these, this group of tenants I was describing who were facing a warrant of eviction before the pandemic and haven't been evicted yet. Um, 
So, and there's this other, you know, there are so many like branches off in this thing, but a lot of the uh, restrictions on evictions that have been coming out of Albany and clarified by the court are specifically about non-payment cases. So that's what it sounds like, like you're being evicted because you haven't paid your rent. There's this other kind of grab bag of eviction cases called holdovers, and that includes, you know, say you've overstayed your lease or your landlord says you're quote-unquote a nuisance or you've violated a lease term. I think everyone's looking really closely at those types of cases because they seem to have, you know, fewer restrictions and protections against eviction. Um, so all that's to say is like City Hall's like right to counsel program, they've identified within New York City, um, I think a little more than 2,100 open warrants from pre-pandemic uh, times that they want to, you know, they've been sending mailers to these tenants, trying to make sure they can get a lawyer. Um, so I think in the short term, from like a legal perspective, it's a lot of like, you know, rushing to make sure um, that as much information and like uh, information about what's happening is like getting to tenants and people who need that. Um, and yeah, and then I guess it's just, you know, like landlords have been considering, I think, their own kind of legal route to try to lift some of these restrictions. It's not totally clear how that's going to go. Um, yeah, and then I think, you know, there's this general moment of advocacy that we're in, um, you know, when we see the protests against police brutality um, and the Black Lives Matter actions. You know, what I witnessed outside Brooklyn Housing Court a few weeks back was like a big, raucous action um, that I think sort of overlapped with the momentum coming out of Black Lives Matter. And I saw people drawing a connection between the fight for tenants' rights and the, type, the fight for black lives. And it seems like, as with everything, we're in this moment of like ramping up the demands. Um, so I, I guess another way that's manifesting is some tenants have been organizing rent strikes. Um, that started April 1st. Um, the statewide coalition Housing Justice for All has been really encouraging, you know, individual buildings all across the state and the city to, um, you know, take that measure and, and, you know, demand the cancellation of rent. So I don't see that slowing down anytime soon. Um, but we're definitely moving uh, from a tenant perspective, like step by step gradually into this more precarious uh, zone, I would say. Well, Emma Whitford, reporter for Law 360, thank you for joining CityWatch. Thank you. And I just want to go over the, those resources that Emma shared again because they're so important. There's no right to an attorney in housing court the way there is in criminal court. And so people often go into uh, proceedings that may end in their eviction and getting kicked out of their homes without an attorney. Uh, the city has moved to ensure more and more people, especially low-income New Yorkers, have access to an attorney. So Emma said people can call 311, city number, and ask for the tenant helpline Mondays through Fridays, 9 to 5. That's 311, the tenant helpline. And she also mentioned housing court answers, which uh, also another legal referral service. You can call 212-962-4795. That's 212 212- Nine six two four seven nine five. We just have a few more minutes in this episode, and so I want to thank our guest Antonio Reynoso, City Council Member representing much of North Brooklyn and a piece of Ridgewood, Queens, who's running for Brooklyn Borough President and Law Three Hundred and Sixty Reporter Emma Whitford. WBAI depends on contributions from our listeners to can bring to continue bringing you this great coverage, this great level of interviews with great guests like Antonio Reynoso and Emma Whitford, and we want to continue doing that. So please consider making a sustaining contribution and becoming a BAI buddy. Listeners can become buddies by going to give to the number two WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org and clicking buddies on the upper left-hand corner when the site opens and follow the prompts. You can call our call center at 516-620-3602. Again, 516-620-3602 and say you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of any program, but come on, in the name of CityWatch. You can also text WBAI to 41444 and follow the prompts on your smartphone. That's WBAI to 41444. We appreciate the support. And as I said earlier, and I've said in the last couple episodes, act now 
and I will throw in a free digital subscription of my newspaper, the Queen's Daily Eagle. I am the editor, and we're the only daily paper in the entire borough of Queens. So if you subscribe to WBAI, send me a DM on Twitter. I am at David F. Brand. Again, at David F. Brand. And let me know. I'll get you the Queen's Daily Eagle soaring into your inbox every morning. Again, that's double the bang for your buck. You become a BAI buddy and an Eagle amigo with one monthly contribution. Just visit give to the number two, WBAI.org. Give to WBAI.org. Thank you for considering and for contributing. And thank you for listening today. I'm your host, David Brand, and I want to thank you so much for joining us again this Sunday morning. I want to again thank my guests, Councilmember Antonio Reynoso, a candidate for Brooklyn Borough President, and Law 360 reporter Emma Whitford. I also want to thank news correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston for her excellent installment in her Coronavirus Diaries series. My co-host Jeff Simmons will be back next week with another great show, 10 a.m. Sunday. I want to thank our engineer, Sean Rhodes, man in the ones and twos in the studio there. Please continue to tune in and wear your mask, wash your hands. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. I see so many people going around without a mask. Just please wear a mask. Protect yourselves. Protect us. We are all in this together. Thank you. like the best, the mainstream media, those same voices rarely offer an alternative. Lucky for you, you found the alternative already. You're tuned to it right now. Hi, my name is Reggie Johnson, and I'm the host of From the Soundboard. WBAI is a listener-supported commercial-free radio station that loves to challenge the norms and defy them. But in order to keep providing you with groundbreaking conversations and unique arts content you rely on, we need your help. Donate by visiting Give to That's the number two, WBAI.org. Or pledge right from your smartphone by texting the letters WBAI to 41444. And thank you for your support.
They're also delivering educational, entertaining content straight to our homes, and they're doing it all with less. So let's come together to support nonprofits today. Look for the hashtag support nonprofits on social media to learn more. WBI listener for a long, long time from uh, Democracy Now to the late and great Armand DeMille. I'm really appreciative of, of the fact that I'm on the revolutionary radio station right now in New York City. I'm Josh Fox, and you're listening to WBAI 